Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. When it comes to political journalism and political analysis, prediction is a fraught business. It's usually a good idea to expect the unexpected, even when looking ahead for just a few weeks. And that's why journalists and political scientists often hedge their bets on any looks into the future with multiple caveats and disavowals. That's even more true when it comes to casting forward more, like a year or two in advance. It's a mugs game, really and nobody wants to be a laughing stock when they get their predictions played back to them later. Nobody, that is, except us here at Inside Politics. We decided to look today at the events that could well be the most significant in shaping the course of politics in 2023. The thing about those events is that they're not going to take place until 2024 or possibly even 2025. I'm referring to the the local European and the general elections, all of which are scheduled to take place within a nine-month window stretching from May 2024 to March 2025. So what is going to happen in those elections and what variables over the next 16 months might influence how they play out and their outcomes? To discuss this, I'm joined by Theresa Reedy, political scientist at University College Cork, by Pat Leahy and by Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Hello to you all. Hello. Good morning. Hello, Hugh. How are you? I'm not so bad. So, Pat, what are the actual rules about when these elections must happen? Well, the European elections, which nowadays always coincides with the local elections in Ireland, will be held at the end of May in 2024. There's a five-year set term for the European Parliament and the last one was in the end of May 2019. So I expect the polling day will be, it's supposed to be in so far as practical, same date throughout Europe, but some European countries hold their elections on a, by tradition on a Sunday, Normally Thursday or Friday, could be Saturday here. Um, but it, it will be, I guess, at the end of May 2024. It will coincide with the, by convention, with the local elections. So that's in whatever, 15 months, 16 months time. Um, the general election must be held uh, before early March uh, 2025. So the last election was in February of uh, 2020, five-year term. The election must happen five years or less than the date of the meeting of the, uh, of, of the first day of the previous doll met. So, um, so early, early March, more likely February 2025, unless the government, and it is the decision of the Taoiseach, decides to go earlier than that, which he can do, uh, which he can do, of course. And there's been a fair bit of speculation, has been my own view for some time, that depending on the results of the uh, 2024 local and Europeans, and also, uh, and possibly to a greater extent, the prevailing political context at the time, 
that uh, Leo Varadkar may call an election in the autumn of 2024. And it was speculated upon in a couple of the papers last weekend that uh, election could be held after a giveaway budget in end of September, beginning of October 2024. So, you know, that could run into the maybe the end of October 2024. So let's take these in chronological order, Theresa, and let's look first at the, uh, at the Europeans and the locals happening simultaneously. These are frequently described in Ireland as second order elections, which does say something about the value or the amount of power we give both to local government and the amount of respect we give to the European Parliament. Yeah, second order elections are, are ones really where you're not electing the government of the state. So we tend to class everything into that category. But there's a good deal of difference between different types of uh, second order elections. The uh, Europeans, I would argue, have quite a bit of an effect. And actually, the European Parliament has been strengthened over many years now. And I don't think we've necessarily always... Um, brought that into our domestic politics or fully understood or realised the extent to which it can affect um, our daily lives. Local government really is the Cinderella of politics, so I'd absolutely agree with you there. The effect it has on people's daily lives is is very, very limited. But at the same time, local elections, you tend to have over 2,000 candidates and you're selecting 900-odd local councillors. So they're lively and there's a lot of activity on the ground and they have important consequences in terms of preparing and setting up parties for general elections. Yes, we hear regularly, in fact, Jack, from uh, party political leaders that the the locals are the springboard for the general. They're the way to bring new candidates to the table, to give them profile in their in their local areas and then in their constituencies at the general election. Doesn't always work that way. I mean, looking back to um, the the locals in in twenty nineteen, they actually ended up misleading a couple of the main political parties. They caused Sinn Fein because Sinn Fein had a terrible election then to reduce their candidates in the general election, and which was really meant that they didn't maximise their their surge. Um, and also in the Europeans, they, they lost seats too. Meanwhile, Fianna Fáil did quite well. So it, it's, it's going to be quite interesting this time around to see how that, all that pans out. But it's not necessarily a guide to future performance, as the banks say. Yeah, so I think that the risk is that um, not necessarily you... <sighs> You, I think the risk is basically that you overinterpret the signal that's coming out of the, the local and European elections. I think that signals do tend to come out of them, but that given the proximity between the local and European polling date and the uh, general election last time out, which may even be more concertina this time out, depending on when they go, you know, the uh, as I say, the signal can be misinterpreted. Um, look back one general, one local and European election uh, before 2019, and Labour, the Labour Party got an absolute shellicking at the um, at the polls, and afterwards decided to uh, to decapitate the then leader Eamon Gilmore. And I think that they probably intuited the correct signal from the electorate at that stage, which was that the policy platform that Labour was on nationally was going to lead to it being decimated in the following general election, but. They took the wrong action arising from it. They thought that by changing the leader, you could uh, you could effectively you know offer up a head and a plate and satisfy the electorate. Whereas really, what was called for probably at that stage was a more fundamental reorganization of the party's uh, approach to government. And and the fact that they didn't do that meant that you know even though they picked up the signal correctly, uh, they didn't change enough with beyond changing the leader. And um, the risk, I suppose, this time out is that 
if uh, someone does something similar, um, the general election could follow in a short matter of months, as Pat has already said. The received wisdom uh, and the early consensus around Leinster House is that uh, the general election is likely to come before Christmas 2024, so that's before Christmas next year, in that kind of fallow period between the uh, the budget, presumably another early budget, and, and, and Christmas and before you really get into the teeth of winter. And the risk is that, you know, people just do the wrong thing in the interim, over-interpret, under-interpret, or that the signal is just kind of too, too deeply embedded uh, in the result from the local and Europeans and someone takes a misstep. Yeah, before we get into the implications, and I think it is telling that we immediately start talking about the implications of this first bunch of elections for the second bunch of uh, of elections. But I mean, there are some interesting questions that arise um, in in the, in the European elections, for example. Uh, it strikes me that there's there's something which I don't think we've seen before, which is there's quite a amount of, quite a lot of controversy around two of our current MEPs, uh, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, uh, over their performance in the European Parliament, particularly in relation to issues such as the current the current war in Ukraine. It might be interesting to see how that plays out. It's not. These are not the kind of subjects that are usually front of mind in an Irish election. Do you think they might be this time around? Yeah, I think that the you know pro Russia, pro China sort of stance taken by Mick Wallace and Claire Daly will not play well with voters. Whether voters have that uppermost in their mind when they come to the polls is is another thing. You know, we we don't really have any indications of you know, how their performance has been judged by voters. Nobody's really done any polling. I'd be surprised if some of the MEPs aren't doing some of their own polling this year in advance of next year's elections. Uh, but you're right, uh, the, the stances taken by um, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, my guess is that they're they're quite unpopular amongst many people, particularly on Russia and Ukraine. And I would be interested... I'd be very interested to see how that plays out in electoral context. For what it's worth, the conventional wisdom uh, around Leinster House suggests that, uh, and, you know, take that with whatever size of a grain of uh, salt that you wish to, but these are, I suppose, guys who are professional politicians, and so they're definitely worth listening to on some things anyway. And uh, But they, the general view, is, as far as I can glean it, is that both Daly and Wallace will be in significant difficulty in retaining their seats. Neither of them really has much of a profile uh, at, uh, at home in the way that some MEPs try to maintain and... Uh, I think there's a general expectation that if their seats do go, that there may be opportunities for Sinn Féin to pick up seats. Because in a way, Theresa, what Sinn Féin would be doing, let's say for the sake of argument that they were picking up those two seats uh, in uh, Daly's seat and Wallace's seat, is they'd really just be getting back to where they had been previously because they had a terrible European elections and a terrible local elections and they lost seats in those constituencies last time around. Yeah, absolutely. Their performance in 2019 was very, very poor. And it wasn't until late in 2019 that we began to see the kind of uptick that then materialised in 2020. I mean, they lost all but one of their European Parliament seats and they had been quite a significant force. I mean, there's a there's a real conundrum at the kind of heart of European Parliament elections in Ireland. And that's that we tend to return a large number of very critical 
um, EU critical, EU sceptic MEPs. But we have among the most pro-European electorates in, in the whole of the European Union. Why do you think that is? What's the reason for that conundrum, do you think? I mean, I think it goes back to where we started, that we don't necessarily focus on European issues, that we don't really um, uh, engage with the extent to which the European Parliament shapes our, our, our lives. And it's also the case that at these second order elections, smaller political parties can find it easier to, um, you know, have their say, to have their voices uh, voices heard. And there is more openness amongst the electorate generally to kind of vote against the, the mainstream political parties. So there's a whole series of, of kind of factors and variables that come together that make it just that little bit easier for the Eurocritical um, MEPs to come, come through. And it's not a new phenomenon of Daly and uh, Wallace and, and, and Sinn Féin. We have a bit of a history of that if you go back uh, through the through the elections. So I, I think, you know, we would expect that there will still be a quite strong Eurocritical um, space. But there's a, a real danger there as well, though, for Sinn Féin the next time around, because potentially they'll be just months out from a, a, a general election. And they're kind of past uh, positioning on Europe has been very strongly critical. Um, but they'll need to balance that carefully with a kind of set of uh, views and objectives uh, that position them to potentially be a party of government at the next general election. Um, so we've already seen them uh, really tone down some of their more Eurocritical uh, views. So I think there's definitely gains there to be had for Sinn Féin, but it's not going to be an easy election for them. They will have to go into it with a very carefully calibrated strategy to pitch themselves sufficiently Eurocritical to retain their voters. But for example, they won't want to scare off their younger voting cohort, which tends to be very pro-European. So let's talk a little bit about Sinn Féin there, Jack, because, as we say, they had a terrible local and Europeans the last time around. And then just a remarkable, one of the most astonishing turnarounds in, in Irish electoral politics, I think, between that and their uh, their record-breaking performance in the general election. And they've built on that performance at the polls to be become clearly by some margin, the largest party. And they will really be looking both at European and local election to to reinforce that and to reinforce the narrative of inexorable change in Irish politics. That's their message, isn't it? Yeah, and I think they'll be pushing against an open door. I mean, I, I, I really struggle to see a world in which Sinn Féin don't have a good local and European elections next year compared to their previous outing. I mean, they, they really badly underperformed their polling numbers. In 2019, in the Irish Times uh, kind of eve of election polling, they were in and around 16%. They were actually in the middle of a kind of a downward swing that um, reached its nadir in October of that year. And since then, they've been on on the way up. But even relative to that 16% number, they underperformed quite badly. Um, I think it was 9.5% or something like that in the locals and somewhere in the regions of of uh, 11% in the Europeans. So, I mean, even if they underperformed their national figure by the same ratio, i.e., you know, got about two thirds of the national figure, they would still do very well relative to, to last time out and increase their their seat totals um, at the locals, which which are ex- extra, extraordinarily low. What about Theresa's point about their their broader coalition, I suppose, now and holding on to that that protest vote, which is perhaps more important in a low stakes election, at least as the electorate seems to see it in something like the Europeans? Yeah, I agree entirely with with Theresa. They have a they have a difficult path to to tread, but I, I I do think that no matter how they how they do it, you know the 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 polling momentum behind them is such that they will have a a, a good or at least a better election. Like so, for example, we were talking about Claire Daly's seat in Dublin, 
I mean, I, I don't see Sinn Féin not taking a seat in Dublin if they're still polling in and around what they are at the moment, which is mid to high 30s in the capital. Uh, you know, there's there, there's a seat for them there on that on that number. So I think that, like, even if it's only a kind of qualified success, even if they underperform their national figure, you know, the, the, the narrative around Sinn Féin will be, uh, you know, relatively positive for them, you know, if they manage not to kind of have any electoral disasters, either in terms of, unmassively underperforming or a candidate going going massively off message which is probably more of a risk in the in the locals than it is in the europeans as theresa has already said there's two thousand odd candidates nationwide uh candidate selection is, is difficult when it happens at that level and you know there's always the risk that that someone says something deeply off message and that kind of metastasizes into a national scandal and i think that's one that can't really be confined to, to Sinn Féin I know you, you want to talk about Sinn Féin but that risk also exists for Fianna Fáil Fine Gael and the Green Party and in terms of what they say about each other and how that affects kind of broader coalition coherence and how the three parties of government talk about each other during a local and national uh, election when they're not bound by the kind of the common adherence to the, the programme for government Yeah I want to ask Pat in a moment about the government parties but just a f- quick follow up to you Jack if Sinn Féin are at or thereabouts 33% let's say in Dublin a four seat constituency I think I'm right in saying mm. they're either in competition for a second seat or they've got a lot of transfers going to elect presumably a, a left-wing candidate of some sort yes so I mean the question is I suppose whether those whether those votes transfer to kind of a far left candidate or, or a center left candidate I mean they may help elect a social Democrat a labor party member or help bolster um a, a green seat you know I mean obviously Karen Cuff did it exceptionally well in the last uh in the last European election topping the poll I suspect he won't do so again but would would a, a Sinn Féin transfer across to him help him keep his keep his his seat and so Pat turning to the government parties obviously as with all government parties, there's a defensive element to their strategy as they prepare for these elections. And presumably they, at, at least two of them, I think will be anticipating losses, if not three, given that Fianna Fáil and the Greens did particularly well. If we cast our minds back to the local elections of 2019, all the talk on the day, although it didn't quite turn out to be the case in the end when all the, all the results were in, was of a green wave, a green surge, a green tsunami. Presumably that wave will be in retreat to some extent this time around. Yeah, I mean, that's, I suppose, what you would expect, given that the Greens are the best ever locals in 2019, you would expect, and they're now in government, their numbers are, the numbers are certainly down from where they were at the general election. Uh, I mean, they haven't collapsed completely. And, uh, you know, but I suppose looking at it now, you would expect the Greens to sustain some losses, but I, I, I think particularly in the local elections, I think you'll see green candidates making, you know, strong pitches on practical green issues that, uh, you know, that, that, that appeal to people, you know, things like cycle lanes and, uh, and so forth. And I think if the Greens can cut through on those sort of practical everyday environmental uh, policies, then I think they can. I think they can probably contain the losses. And I mean, if you think about the broader picture, you know the the issue of climate change and climate action is one that will be more important in politics next year, I think, than it was in twenty nineteen. More people will be concerned 
uh, about climate change and more people would be convinced of the necessity for, uh, for climate action. And I think that has to help the Greens uh, uh, somewhat. So I, I, I can see the Greens containing, uh, containing their losses. I'm not saying they won't lose seats, probably will, but I'd be surprised at this point if there's, you know, a wipeout. Um, and, and, you know, just as, just as the 2019 green tsunami, and I may even have written some of those stories myself, uh, didn't quite turn out to be uh, a tsunami. You know, it was a big wave of support. It's the best election ever, but, you know, it, it didn't sweep all before it. Um, so I suspect that the anticipated, uh, the anticipated collapse, or the collapse that's anticipated in some quarters at least, perhaps won't, won't, won't quite materialise. More interesting, I guess, then, for the two... Uh, the two bigger parties of, of government, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, I think it'll be really interesting for them for different reasons. Um, you know, they'll, I think it's fair to say that the, you know, the electoral project Varadkar, uh, if I can call it that, didn't really work um, last time uh, in the general election. Irish people had a good look at uh, Leo, Leo Varadkar and decided not to vote for his party in the, uh, in the sort of numbers that many of his supporters would have hoped for when they uh, when they made him leader, so it will be interesting to to see if that uh, if that judgment still holds. In terms of the seats that are held, though, Theresa at the moment, as I said, Fianna Fáil had a decent election in twenty nineteen. Um, uh, Fine Gael less so. So, I mean, what what I mean, of course, everybody will claim success, but what, in your view, might represent success for those two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? A simple hold or minimising uh, losses? I mean, holding their own would be a good outcome for both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael the next time around. I mean, Fianna Fáil returned in 2019 as the largest party of local government, which symbolically for Fianna Fáil mattered in terms of how it saw itself on its kind of path to recovery after uh, after 2011. Um, but they still got about 26% of the vote, which is substantially ahead of where they've been trending in opinion polls and in recent times. And you have to add into that that they're now also in government, so there'd be something of a penalty associated with that. So if Fianna Fáil were to come back uh, with 26-27% the next time around, I think that would be a very good day out for, for Fianna Fáil. So minimising losses is probably a, a more likely scenario. I think the case of Fianna Gael, slightly different. It did a little bit better than it did in 2014 um, in, in 2019. But we have to remember 2014 was in absolutely at the peak of the water protests uh, and Fianna Gael were really hammered at that time. Um, but again, no more than Fianna Fáil. It, it's still substantially, well, not as much for, for Fianna Gael, but it's still ahead of where they're trending in recent, uh, in recent polls. Uh, so it will be something of a challenge for them. But I do think that these parties take the uh, the locals um, very, very seriously. And I agree that we maybe can over-interpret the, um, the dynamics and who's up and who's down. But I think there is a kind of straight truism there that the vast majority of the TDs that get elected um, at every general election have previously been councillors. So there is something important about that point of contesting um, council elections. It does give candidates that experience. It allows them to build teams. And even 
even in 2020, there were very few people elected that had not at some point previously been a councillor. Um, so whatever the kind of vagaries and the ups and downs on the day, that process of going through council election and being a local councillor is very important as part of the kind of pipeline into national politics for all of the parties. We're going to take a quick break in a moment. But before we do, though, I want to ask you about one thing which has been uh, bothering me, I suppose, to some extent, Jack, about all this, which is Pat sketched out a, a, a plausible or likely or at least possible scenario where the government calls an election after the budget in autumn 2024. That's a less than a six-month window between the two sets of elections. Bubbling away under the surface is the plans of Michal Martin and the leadership of Fianna Fáil and some suggestions of a kind of a sequencing that might take place with Michal Martin departing the leadership after one set of elections and before the others. And that looks like a very tight and possibly dangerous kind of a time frame to try and execute such such a tricky manoeuvre. Yeah, it's not enough time would be my view. Um, I think that if he was to go after the locals and if, you know, we follow that that path that we're all supposing we will and, and we should say we're some way out, uh, there's a lot of variables to contend with between here and there. Um, you know, you would be looking at, I think, only maybe five months even uh, between the two, the two dates. Um, and during that five-month period, you'd be asking, first of all, uh, Fianna Fáil to decide on who its new leader is. And we don't know how bloody that process may be. Um, we have been talking a little bit about signals from the local and Europeans and misinterpreting them or picking them up correctly. I mean, if he was dug in after that and it was a bad set of results, I think he's the most vulnerable leader of the three big parties to to to, to change and to a coup. And if he you know, fought a rearguard action and uh, there was a messy changeover, that would take some time. Even if he you know decided to go himself, of his own volition, accepting that he wouldn't lead them into the next um, election, there would have to be a, a selection process, and then and then an election of a new leader, and then that leader would have to obviously put their stamp on on the party between then and and the next general election. And you know the obvious way in which to do that would be at the budget, but given the fact that that would be a full blooded election budget, if they were to go shortly afterwards. How do you distinguish yourself from the other crowd who are also turning on the money hose and pointing it at every single social and political problem with the hope of buying as many votes um, ahead of ahead of the next general election? So I think that that presents a particular conundrum, a particular problem for Fianna Fáil and may ultimately favour him signalling an, an earlier departure before the next local and European elections. But that would be, I mean, he'd majorly be losing face if he did that, So, given that his, his current stance, publicly articulated stance, is that he's going to lead them into the next general election. If he didn't even do it to the next local and Europeans, like that wouldn't look great, would it? Okay, and we will turn to the uh, the general election in a moment just after the break. Before we do that, let me remind you that if you do want to follow all the twists and turns of Irish and international politics over the next 18, 24, 36, 48 months, you should do so on irishtimes.com and you can sign up at irishtimes.com slash subscribe to get all our journalism 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Pat and Jack and Theresa are still here. We are moving on now to the general election, which is more of a movable feast than the fixed European and local elections, which happen in late May 2024. Pat, I was interested that that you say late autumn. Let's, for the sake of argument, just for the sake of simplicity, say that that's the optimal date from the point of view of the government, if it is still in control of its own destiny in that fashion. 
One of the variables here is that we're going to see quite significant boundary changes and an increase in the number of seats in the Dáil. Big time. And this will be a huge factor in how individual TDs are approaching the question. Um, So we've had a census. Preliminary results have already been published. More detailed results to be published in April, as I understand it. And on those results, then the boundaries of uh, Dáil constituencies may be withdrawn. We do know that there is going to be quite a significant increase in the number of TDs. The constitution lays down a minimum and maximum uh, in terms of uh, representation. There has to be a TD for every 20,000 of the population and uh, the maximum then is one for every 30,000. Of the uh, of of the population, and because the population has grown um, so substantially in recent years, we are going to have to have. Uh, I think it's at least nine more TDs, but there may be more than that. So it's currently 160 TDs in the doll. General expectation is that. Uh, there will be somewhere between 170 and 180 TDs in the next Dáil, which will mean that there will be uh, constituencies which get additional seats, possibly new constituencies, maybe some of the bigger five-seat constituencies could be split into two uh, and be made two three-seaters. So all that is to be decided by the new electoral Commission, which is expected to report with its recommendations in July of this year, after which they will be put into uh, they'll be put into legislation then by the by the doll. So there's an awful lot going to happen uh, in, in in terms of how const- constituencies are constituted and um, and where TDs are to be elected from over over the coming months. And nothing matters more to individual TDs uh, than this. They're obsessed by what might happen to their constituencies, what new areas might come in, what areas they might lose, and the implications, obviously, uh, for their, uh, their own electoral chances. And I, can I ask you, Theresa, I think uh, people will know that since the days of the famous Tullymander in the 1970s, this has been taken out of the direct control of the of, of the government of the day. But the government still can make uh, recommendations to this independent commission. And those recommendations could, you know, have an effect upon whether it decides, I don't, for example, whether the five-seat Donegal constituency gets changed into two, three-seat Donegal constituencies, and that would have a, you could have a, you know, a huge effect, for example, on the amount of seats that Sinn Féin would target there. Well, th- to some extent, the, the parameters have already been set because the Electoral Reform Act set down a lot of this last year. Um, so we know, for example, that larger constituencies have been ruled out. At one stage, there was a fairly lively discussion taking place about whether we might go back to the 1920s and 1930s and have constituencies of up to nine TDs. And, and that was basically scotched last year. Be- Why? Because the, the Electoral Reform Act is very clear. Uh, five is going to be the maximum size. So the constituency size uh, constitutionally is set down at a minimum of three, but of course it can vary upwards in law. Uh, but the, the Reform Act is very clear that five is going to be the maximum. So that actually means that we now know a lot more about places where there are going to be changes. So uh, the exact places you mentioned, Donegal, for example, is now going to have, we think, population too large for its current five-seat um, allocation. So it's more than likely going to have to be split into two three-seat constituencies. We think the same will probably happen in Kerry, potentially in Wexford. And and that has important implications because it it looks uh, at least 
for some of the rural areas, like we're going to be creating a lot of three seat uh, constituencies, whereas um, in political science, we would say kind of increasing the number of larger seat constituencies leads to a more proportional outcome. It it means that it's um, easier uh, for smaller political parties and sometimes indeed independents uh, to perform better. The three seat constituencies uh, really advantage the kind of, I want to say the bigger political parties, but of course, we don't really have big political parties anymore we have three medium-sized political parties, but they would effectively be fighting it out in the three-seat constituencies, where it would be quite difficult for smaller parties like the Greens and the Social Democrats to get a look in. So there's actually a very big challenge uh, ahead in terms of this redraw, because it's going to be the biggest increase in the doll that we've seen um, and it's also a new process for doing this. So previously it was a statutory boundary commission. This time around it's going to be uh, the electoral commission. So that that change in its of itself is is also new. Um, and the you know the, 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 we're, it remains to be seen uh, what the distribution will be. And politicians are extremely sensitive uh, to this because uh, you can imagine for political parties, this is really critical in terms of how they calibrate their electoral strategy. How many candidates do they need in each constituency? Um, you know, how many candidates do they have in their overall team? Um, so it'll be at least the middle of this year, possibly even later in the year uh, before the parties get that information, which is really essential in terms of their election planning. To me, this seems absolutely key, Jack. If we if we stick with the Donegal example, because it's relatively close to my own heart, um, you know, Sinn Féin were targeting three seats in a five-seat Donegal constituency. Presumably, they're going for trying at least for two out of three in each of the smaller constituencies, but that's more of a stretch. The whole question, you know, a, a couple of percentage points here and there make all the difference for the largest party, which in this case is Sinn Féin, although at nothing like the level of the old largest party of Fianna Fáil back 20 or 30 years ago, you know, can they can they make that stretch to get two out of three to get the kind of numbers they want? Is that realistic? You can see ways in which this might benefit a Sinn Féin surge or Sinn Féin might just fall short. Absolutely. And, and you know, there are still so many variables, not least, you know, we don't know exactly where the dividing lines would, would fall in any new newly subdivided five-seaters, um, making them into two, three-seaters, and that, and that will have a fairly substantial Im, Im, impact as well. Um, and and the, the theories as to who will benefit uh, are, are many, and depending on who you talk to. Um, I mean, just, just to take one out for a walk, one that I found particularly interesting, talking to someone... Um, in the recent past about the impact of three-seaters, this is someone in Fine Gael, and they were effectively saying that, you know, the prospect of, of a load of three-seaters coming onto the pitch left them terrified because the idea being that Sinn Féin would be competitive for a seat in every constituency, more or less, up and down the country, uh, and that then there would be the creation of a bunch of three-seaters where you'd have either a strong independent brand or a strong smaller party brand candidate, uh, perhaps a sitting TD, um, and and that effectively they would take two of the seats. Uh, you'd have the possibility of a second Sinn Féin candidate coming in, and you'd have the the traditionally two largest parties with the addition probably in some constituencies of of the Greens as another government party scrapping it out for the last seat, or maybe not being in the reckoning at all. So you know, they, 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 there are so many variables that you can kind of probably sketch a, a much more optimistic outcome for uh, for the government and a much more pessimistic one for for Sinn Féin. But you know, the, it, it's clear that you know there is um, multiple risks to account for here. Um, and we will only really 
begin to be able to to start processing this when we when we know what the the dividing lines are. I think in the the middle of the summer, I think around July time. So Pat, Theresa refers to 3C constituencies as being uh, generally less proportionately representative than than the larger constituencies. The other thing that strikes me about them is that they're more unpredictable. That that relatively minor fluctuations in in uh, the 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 vote share of the different parties can have outsized consequences. That's what happened with the famous Tullymander in the 70s. It was set up to benefit the then coalition, but because of a shift in the polls, it massively benefited Fianna Fáil. Yeah, so to understand this, you need to understand that in the the, the arithmetic of our system, there are a series of steps and you get beyond those steps or you get up onto those steps and you can win a seat. So in a uh, a four-seater constituency, right, so the quota is 20% of the uh, 20% of the vote. So if you get 16% or so on the first on the first count, you know, you're you're pretty sure of uh, of of winning a seat. But to win two seats then you need 40% or the guts of 40%. So you can, your party can win 16% and it will probably win a seat. Or it can win, say, 30% or 32%. It could win twice as many votes. And you're still going to be, you know, you still you may not win two seats on, on 32%. You probably you 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 probably won't. So, you know, within there's there's a whole series of of of, of those thresholds or steps. And that if you can get close to them, then you can uh you 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 can win additional seats. So say you in that four-seater, say if you win, say take for argument's sake, you know, Sinn Fein might be hoping to win 32%, still probably only going to win one seat in a four-seater. But if it can get to 34% or 35%, just a couple of additional percent, then it's in the hunt for two seats. So the arithmetic will play out differently, of course, in every constituency. And you have to, you know, include the... Uh, you know the geography factors uh, into uh, uh, yeah, in, in, into the eventual outcome as well. But the the system, while representative, has you know a number of those sort of thresholds in them. You don't reach them, and lots of your votes go to waste. But if you can get just a couple of extra percent and get over those thresholds then you're in the hunt for multiple seats. And I would imagine that Sinn Féin is trying to apply its, you know, it's, it's, it's applying its electoral strategy to each constituency with that, uh, with that in mind. And so here we come to the nub of the matter, really, Theresa. When we look to the next election, it's all to play for for Sinn Féin. The gov- there are, there's a further question which I'll ask Jack about, about the, about the government parties. But in relation to this, if I, off the top of my head in my non-political scientist way, looked at Sinn Féin's current standing at the polls and tried to extrapolate that into the current doll, if there were to be an election on, on the current terms of the constituencies, I see them at somewhere north of 55, somewhere between 55 and 60 in the, in the current doll. But there, there, there is a, perhaps an outside possibility that if they perform at that level in with the new constituency boundaries, or maybe even build a point or two on it, they could they could get a really significant seat bonus, and somebody else could lose out badly alongside that. Absolutely, because one of the other things that matters in the the system is momentum. So when when the tide is with you, um, because of the way the system works with transfers, if you're if you're popular on your first preference vote, you're usually popular in terms of the 
later preferences that you um, might be picking up all the way through the system. So if the if the wind is with you, uh, there is an additional, that's where the seat bonus comes from. Um, so there's real potential for Sinn Féin to do very well the next time around. And, and that means our conversation on Sinn Féin has, has just completely transformed from where it would have been 20 years ago, where we used to often talk about Sinn Féin as being a transfer toxic party. Um, it was a party that had its own core support. They were very loyal supporters. Uh, but because of its history, uh, history, it didn't tend to pick up that kind of secondary soft support um, when the election was playing out. But that picture is completely transformed now. So the party really has huge momentum in terms of its headline support. But there's also the potential for it to pick up this softer support as it goes through at the next uh, election. And I think the vote left transfer pact that we had uh, the last time around, uh, whether that's formal or not the next time around, it's going to work in the inverse uh, in 2020, uh, it meant that Sinn Féin um, surpluses, and they had huge surpluses uh, in many constituencies, elected all these other smaller left-wing uh, political parties. Uh, but it's going to go the other way around this time around if the polls continue the way they are. First of all, Sinn Féin is just, it's going to have more candidates and it's going to have more, more people elected. Um, but those transfers that elected left-wing parties the last time around aren't going to go because the Sinn Féin candidates are still going to be in the race. And it's those candidates that are going to be eliminated and they're going to add and get more Sinn Féin uh, people over, over the line. So, I mean, I think we are looking at it all of 171 or 172 seats. Um, so you, you can take your projections kind of a good bit up from, from there in, in a new doll. Should trends prevail and continue the way they are uh, at the moment? It could be a very good day for Sinn Féin. That's the huge variable that we don't necessarily know about. But that question of of voting pacts, be they formal or informal, uh, Jack, if the vote left um, uh, agreement or pact between the part those parties continues into the next election, does that put increased pressure on the government parties to consider some sort of voting pact between the three of them? I think it does, and and it would help them kind of to an extent, almost kind of astroturf that momentum that Theresa was talking about. If they can, you know implicitly tell their voters to uh, to transfer between mainstream political parties or between the government. And there's a kind of soft proposal to, if not re-elect the government, then, you know, re-elect the politics of this government, re-elect mainstream politics and, you know, beware of, of the risk of electing a, a non-mainstream uh, or a government led by a non-mainstream party. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, given his manner, uh, the Taoiseach Leverager has been more public about this and more vociferous about this. I think he mentioned it at a doorstep in Kilkenny at the Fine Gael thinking, thinking out loud appropriately enough for thinking about, you know, what would happen or what would have happened if there had been better uh, transfers between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil at the last general election. And he mentioned it again in a pre-Christmas interview with uh, with The Independent where he talked about how um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would have held seats in, in constituencies like Roscommon, South Galway and Dublin South Central had they uh, more effectively kind of transferred uh, votes between each other. So I think that if this government either goes to term or collapses in, a, in an orderly way, maybe a bit of an oxymoron, but, you know, ends by kind of mutual agreement uh, in and around autumn of next year, then I think you will see probably not explicit transfer pacts um, and that the, the the constituent parties of the government will have to chisel out their own identities and figure out what it is that makes them different in the eyes of voters. 
as we've discussed many times before. But, you know, a soft suggestion, as we've already seen from, I think, the likes of Simon Harris, who has said, next time I, I will uh, vote for myself and then I will vote for Stephen Donnelly or another, whoever the, the Fianna Fáil candidate or the Green candidate is and, and proceed down the voting carriage like that. Um, so you'll see this kind of, you know, not 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 formal alliance, but certainly strong suggestion that, that, that votes should transfer between the parties of government or parties who may roughly be seen as, as, as of the mainstream. I'd just be a little bit cautious, though, about over-emphasising the transfer packs because voters aren't as loyal as they once were. They're not as loyal to their headline parties and they're not as susceptible to this kind of guidance. I mean, the vote left worked well the last time around because there was a kind of a change momentum that they narrative that had worked well. But but parties find it hard to actually get transfers to go to their second candidates in the in the field. So, um, you know, Michael Gallagher has done a very extensive analysis of this at recent elections and he'll tell us that a Fianna Fáil candidate transferring 50% of their second preferences to another Fianna Fáil candidate is, is a pretty good transfer. So even internal party loyalty has broken down a lot and it's broken down even more in terms of kind of transferring outside of the party family. So if you can get a, anywhere between kind of 30% and a third of the transfers to go to the other parties in your kind of broad political coalition, you would be doing uh, you would be doing well. I think part of the advantage that Sinn Féin have is, is that they, they have engendered this loyalty from their voters um, and that seems to be sustained um, uh, over the last couple of elections but it's a problem that the other political parties don't seem to have been able to deliver on that quite in fact they're facing uh, headwinds going in the opposite direction so I did think at one stage that I might ask all of you for numbers predictions for the for the next doll, but it does seem to me to be too unfair because there really there are so many variables and so much unpredictability built into the system which which we've outlined here. But Pat, you've often made the point that the Irish electoral process for electing a government is not a one stage but a two stage process. One being the election of the doll, and one being in our in our current multi party system the negotiations that lead to the formation of a government. And I think I'm right in saying as well that you have uh, expressed some scepticism about uh, should Sinn Féin be the largest party, which looks it looks very likely to me, its ability to form a government with the various quite fragmented other parties of the left and that a coalition is more likely to be with Fianna Fáil. So really, for the likes of us, if we're looking at likely outcomes after the next general election, is it on the one hand a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil coalition, and on the other hand, a continuation of the present administration? I mean, I think all the necessary caveats having been entered, but looking at it reasonably at this stage, then I think it'll be it'll be hard to contradict that, Hugh, to be honest. Um, I, of course, anything is is possible, but I think looking at it at this stage, I, I, I don't see a route to government for Sinn Féin. I think you're right that very likely Sinn Féin will be the largest party. So the question then is, what is their route to government? I don't see a route to government as the head of a diverse left-wing coalition. I don't see the numbers there uh, uh, at this point uh, for that, particularly if we're right in some of the things that we've said recently about Sinn Féin taking um, many of its seat gains from the smaller left-wing part, uh, the smaller left-wing parties. Um, and so that leaves Fianna Fáil. I don't think Fianna, Sinn Féin Fianna Gael 
coalition uh, will be on the cards. So that leaves the possibility of a coalition with Fianna Fáil. That depends on the conversation with itself that Fianna Fáil has not yet had. And that conversation may be tied up with a leadership uh, election in, uh, in Fianna Fáil. It, it, it may not. And it may also, or it will certainly be influenced by, in that post-election period, about whether Fianna Fáil has uh, an alternative option uh, of, of, of government, which would be with, um, which, which could be with uh, Fianna Gael, though obviously at the moment they need a third party uh, to make up the numbers on that maybe that will be the case after uh, after the next election uh, maybe not but but yeah i i think very broadly speaking uh, i think i'd be as you know how usually allergic i am to making uh, predictions hugh but uh, i think i'd be content to make that one that um, next government will probably be either continuation of the partnership of the big 2 in the current uh, government perhaps with additional support are a coalition between Sinn Féin and, uh, and Fianna Fáil. Theresa, as our honoured guest, I want to give you the last word on this. I mean, I, th- I think it's worth saying that that would be a, a pretty extraordinary feat for Fianna Gael, uh, because uh, for a party that until very recently couldn't get two consecutive terms in government, uh, it would then be, uh, you know, really heading to challenge the kind of great electoral periods in office of Fianna Fáil of the, the 30s and, and 40s, which is a kind of an unusual uh, outcome. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there are certain challenges, particularly for Fianna Gael going into the, the next election. But I, I think there aren't very many incentives for Fianna Fáil to go into government with Sinn Féin. And, and whilst we, we always say Irish political parties are office-seeking and they want to go into government, uh, I think uh, there will have to be very considerable soul-searching within Fianna Fáil in terms of it, it will be the kingmaker at the next election. And, and the big choice will be whether it's more of the same with Fianna Gael and potentially they kind of continue that struggle since, uh, you know, 1922, or whether they make a huge leap and go in with Sinn Féin. And that really is governing in the great unknown. But I think ultimately Fianna Fáil will be the kingmakers after the next election. Yes, and we'll be looking forward to all of that. And I know from life's experience that all this stuff is going to come at us faster than we think. 2024 is actually not that far away. We'll leave it there for the moment, though. Thanks very much indeed to Teresa, to Pat and to Jack. Uh, this podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. And we're going to be back with you very soon indeed, later in the week. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>